Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. I'm Ben and I'm here with John and Ryan. And today we're going to talk about property management. Now, whether or not you are a lessor or a lessee, if you're involved in real estate or interested in investing in real estate, understanding how property management works, especially for rentals, is a vital uh, part of understanding the real estate business overall. So we're going to jump right into it. And, and we're lucky for us, we have a property management expert in our midst, John Errico, one of the top property managers in all of Northern New Jersey. Uh, John, I'd love to know, I'd be interested to know um, from an origin perspective, first and foremost, how you got started as a property manager. And I think that would be a nice uh, way for us to get into what property management really is. Yeah. I mean, I killed the previous property manager. <laughs> so that, <laughs> no, I mean, um, this is on video, you know? Yeah, no. The central premise of property management when you own an investment property is that you will have to manage the property that you own in some capacity. And I think that that, we talked about this in previous episodes, but I think that that for a lot of investors, newer investors, um, is not necessarily obvious to them. They think that they will either, you know, manage it themselves or whatever, but, but don't really think about what goes into that. So when I bought my first investment property, which was uh, in Union City here in New Jersey, it was a two family home. Very immediately, I, you know, rented out part of the, the house to tenants. And very immediately we had, you know, what I would call property management concerns. For me, they were also homeowner concerns because I was living in the home as well as renting it out. But just as a basic premise, whenever you buy a piece of buy and hold real estate, you will have to manage it in some capacity. And as you scale larger and larger, that can become a bigger and bigger burden on your time or your capabilities. Before I started uh, the construction company and, and did all the things that uh, I do with Ryan that we began last year, I would say that my primary job was a property manager. Um, I managed my portfolio in Hudson County, uh, to some extent properties in South Jersey, and then a little bit uh, properties in Connecticut. And that can be a, a full-time job. I mean, you think, well, how often can you know X problem happen? Well, it might be not very often, but if you multiply that by say 15 properties, then it's going to happen pretty often. So like I've, as I said before in previous podcasts, like the number of times I've had to fix something leaking, you know, like water is the enemy of homes and water from the outside, water from your plumbing, whatever it is, the number of times I've had to deal with a water related issue is so many and it happens all the time. And Every season has its own particular annoyance. Like winter is heating, summer is cooling and rain. Fall and spring are like the transition period of time. So it might be too hot, it might be too cold, it might be this, it might be that. Lots of issues. Did you did you set out and make a conscious decision that you and some combination of you and Shannon were going to manage your properties when you guys started acquiring? Or did it just kind of naturally morph into that over time as you scaled up the portfolio? No, I think it, it morphed into that. And the reason why I, I like to bring up the point about new property investors not realizing the management challenges is because we were very much in that position where we bought the property and we're living in it. And we're like, oh, it's no problem to rent it out to other people. And it, it wasn't. But uh, along with that came the challenges of actually operating it. And, and the the more the farther removed that you get from properties, the I think in some ways, the more difficult it can become. Mm -hmm. Like when you're living at the property you obviously know what the, the problems are. And if you're observant and proactive, you can solve a lot of them before they happen. But if you're not at the property, 
you know, actually during the filming, the recording of one of these episodes, I had a very large problem, which was that one of our uh, basements and one of our properties totally flooded, like over a foot of water and destroyed the boiler and the hot water heater, which was very, very expensive and challenging to replace in the middle of winter. So people didn't have heat also. And being um, the consummate professional that you are, you were unflappable on air. You oh couldn't tell. It really was impressive given the context of what we were dealing thank with. You. Oh, thank you. That's, that means a lot. Um, <laughs> but as an example, you know, I think if I had been living at that house, mm -hmm. I probably would have thought, huh, like, I wonder what that dripping sound is, or I wonder why my water pressure is low or whatever. And I probably would have stopped the problem before it got to the extent where it destroyed these, uh, this equipment in the basement. But because I wasn't there and because I have tenants, not to denigrate them in particular, but obviously they're not either going to be as observant or know what's going on, you know, what happened happened. So uh, if you have tenants where you truly don't know them at all, where you inherit a property with tenants that are in place, you know, Ryan and I have had this issue recently. That has been some of, those have been some of my, my least favorite or most difficult property management experiences because the tenants, you, you didn't, you never talked to them when they went to see the property. You have no idea who they are They're They could have any manner of problems or issues that were inherited from the previous property owner that the property owner didn't tell you because he wants you to buy the property, you know, whatever it might be. So it, it, it's not with, notwithstanding their merit and qualifications as tenants exactly, that yeah. may not have been, you know, that may not have been up to par for you if you were managing it, but that the previous owner had no issues about. Exactly. Yeah. So there's, there's a reason why there are, there is a class of property managers because it, it is a job. And mm -hmm. frankly, it's oftentimes not a very well compensated job given the amount of work that sometimes goes into it, but it is a job. And it's one that I fulfilled for my own properties. At any point, did you consider, did you consider outsourcing it and going with a third party property manager? Or was it always, once you started, it was something that you were going to keep at? No, I didn't really consider outsourcing it because the class of properties that I own and that we buy are primarily single family and small multifamily properties. And finding a property manager to manage those properties can be uniquely challenging, um, mostly because the way that property managers make money is by scale. If you manage a single property and you're, say, taking 8%, 10% of gross rent per month, that's not going to be a lot of money. Um, I mean, you're talking about two, three hundred dollars at most in this area. So to to employ yourself full time, you'd have to have a portfolio of maybe twenty or thirty different properties. And if you can do that all under one roof, if you can manage a twenty unit building, that's great because you have one location, you have maybe one you know boiler, one roof, maybe a few hot water heaters, things like that. So to manage a lot of small one and two family properties, you're not going to find a great property manager. And I know from being in the business that there's so many bad operators in this business, finding a good operator was going to be very challenging. And if I had the time and inclination to do it, then I might as well do it and start a business, you know, doing it professionally, which is what I, I have done. I have a ton of questions that kind of come from uh, what you what you were just describing, but I think my my first one would be so if I'm trying to let's say house hack in an area and I want to take on property management for my individual unit, whether because I think it's cost effective, because I think I have the time, or because I can't find to your point a property manager that's worth you know anything that's willing to take just my one unit. What were the what what maybe are the first things that I should be prepared for, or maybe even better, what were the first things that you realize, gosh, I really need to have X, Y, and Z in place to properly manage this property? Yeah, it's a good question. 
You can sort of think of it as the life cycle of a tenant. If you're house hacking a property, you probably will have a unit that's vacant. So step one would be preparing the unit for a tenant to actually live in. And in that dovetails a little bit with construction as well. But, you know, basic things like do all of the utilities function in the unit? Are there things in the unit that would disqualify it from being rented to a tenant or would maybe reduce the, the you know, the market price of the unit? So that would all be things like, and you can even classify this in the category of preventative maintenance. So if I have a really old, say, stove in the unit, I might think, well, the stove is functional or operational, but, you know, at any time it might break or... Am I going to get the sort of tenant that if the stove breaks, it's going to be a big deal or I have to go and replace the stove? Maybe it's just easier for me before I rent the unit to replace the stove so that I can market it as, look, equipment in the kitchen is new. So there's a whole category of things that you might consider. You might consider painting it, for example, if the walls are you know, scuffed up or have holes in them, which is not uncommon from previous tenants. Just little issues that that if you yourself are living there, you might want to fix you should probably take care of them for the tenant. And then you know, the second step is actually finding a tenant. So that is, is its own challenge. And there's obviously a class of real estate agents and brokers that can do that for you, either for, for cost or for no cost to you as the landlord, depending on where you might live. But tenant selection is its own art and skill. And there are a lot of legal issues as well involved with that and in, involving anti-discrimination and whatever else. So we, we, I mean, we could delve into any of these topics more in, in specificity, but I would think of preparing the unit, finding the tenant, running it to the tenant. And then after that is what you would make, you know, that sort of maintenance or, or more management mode, which is mostly reactionary. So it's, if something goes wrong, which is usually identified by the tenant or possibly by you, you're fixing the problem. Like something is broken, something is leaking, something is whatever. And then once the tenant is gone, you're resetting that process again. So you're re-preparing the unit for rental, you're refining new tenants, et cetera, et cetera. And, and along the way, you might have things like, you know, I want to uh, increase rent. So how would I do that? Or why would I do that? Basic things like, how do I determine what the rent is? We've talked about that in previous episodes. But um, those, all, those are all components that go into it. To, and to Ben's question about preparedness, once you get into the management stage and you have a tenant there, as John alluded to, a lot of it is reactionary. And I think one thing you can do to prepare yourself for that is to make sure that you have a lot of the requisite contacts that you will ultimately need when things hit the fan, um, whether that's a plumber, whether that's a handyman, whether that's a pest control company, whether that's yourself, you know, just know, yeah, yourself yeah. or just knowing the contact info of the utility company when you have an issue with the electricity or the gas or the water. Having all those things handy will save you a lot of headache, especially if you, know, if you have it centralized. And mm-hmm. something I do is just kind of keep a note on my phone of, of all of these of all this relevant information. And so if anything happens, whether I'm at home or on the road, I have access to most of what I need and can generally handle things remotely. I would imagine that the most difficult thing oftentimes for newer property managers or owner-occupiers who are managing their own properties would be during a crisis, what do I do? Who do I call? What do things cost? And obviously, a lot of these things is trial and error, right? We, we John oftentimes talks about just doing in, in a real estate investment. I think property management falls under that umbrella of something that you could just try to do. Just out of curiosity for me, this is kind of a, maybe a little bit of a sidetrack, but we can look at this from two perspectives, right? A perspective of an investor looking for a property manager 
manager and then for listeners of ours who want themselves to be property managers. So just curious, just out of curiosity for the latter, obviously, if you own a property, you have your own affiliated insurance that that covers affiliated issues with that property. But if you are trying to become a property manager, what do is there any steps you have to take with the city or the state or the municipality, anything in particular that you can recommend, John, uh, for people? Or I'm just curious if you have uh, like different insurance for your property management business or something like that. In New Jersey specifically, there are legal requirements to operate legally a property management business. A lot of them are ignored. In other states, I think that the the barriers are probably a little bit less so, but in certain municipalities, you might have to register your management of the building depending on the size of the building. So larger buildings are generally more regulated. So I think in certain cities in New Jersey, if you have, if you're managing a building that's larger than like three units, maybe five units, you have to register with the state, or I'm sorry, with the city, and the city might impose various things on you. I'm not really even sure because it's very municipality by municipality. And honestly, these laws are not enforced a lot. Usually I would say, you know, for if you're if you have like a hundred unit building, you have an on-site management team there. If you have a single family home, you have not an on-site management team. So mm-hmm. th- there's the in, in the hundred unit building probably has a professional management team and they might have certifications that are not legally required but are nice in the industry, like they have taken some course or some whatever it might be, versus the, the the guy managing your single family home, who just could be your buddy or yourself or whatever. So there's a spectrum in professionalism, I would say. And as I alluded to before, the, the space that we operate in is much closer to or identical with the single family, small multifamily space. So that's the least professional, least regulated, kind of least oversight type area of property management. And I would just, I would just, caveat that by saying i think the the if you're looking at this from the purposes for the purposes of self-management things are i think much less prohibitive in the sense that if you're if you're living at the property i don't even know if that's considered quote unquote property management if you are self-managing it yeah a lot of these laws are to the extent they even exist have exemptions if you are an owner of the property even a partial owner of the property right. so then all bets are off that that's why a lot of a lot of man, a lot of bigger buildings will have on-site management that's just a part of the owner of the company right. and they don't qualify under any really laws because they're part of the company that owns it and this this also oftentimes applies as well for rent control and rent control exemption mm-hmm. um i know in a lot of cities the statute may be for units that are or buildings that are four units and larger they are subject to rent control but there's an ex- exemption if it's a four unit building that's owner occupied mm-hmm. uh, you see stuff like that i think sometimes in union city where i think there with the new ordinances that are passing both on a short-term versus long-term rentals and then also registering apartments for rent control and what threshold do you cross two family versus three family and above right. where you have to register apartments for that for new investors it's worth looking into yeah it's it's a good point to to touch on a little bit are the the overarching legal laws that don't have to do with property management per se, but just the operation of renting out an apartment. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned rent control. Rent control is a big issue in New Jersey, and it is to some extent in other other states around here, but I think New Jersey might be pretty singular in the prevalence of rent control, particularly in North Jersey. So rent control is one issue. It's city by city. We've actually been ourselves doing a research project to just document what the rent control laws are in every city, which 
there are so many cities in New Jersey and there's so many different laws. It's very, very, very Too many challenging. Cities. Too many cities, I agree. We can, we, that's a whole nother topic. The consolidation um, of Northern New Jersey. Oh, I mean, it's like they're, it's trying, to, they're trying to break California into five states. I mean, it's like the opposite. <laughs> it starts here, by know? getting one of us or each of us on different city councils. Mm. We have to beat them from within. In this day and age, uh, I think it's probably a daunting challenge to unify people in that capacity. No. <laughs> Even Jersey? I feel like Jersey, maybe. I, I doubt it. Well, this is are why- Are you saying we, we're more divided than ever, right? This is not a are you telling me that, Are you telling me that Bob Menendez can't do the job of unifying the great wider it's New Jersey? It's a great Jersey? point, Union City's Bob finest. Menendez. Wow. Union City's finest. Him and Mayor Stack. We're big supporters. Of, um, <laughs> no, it's- um, So, the, you know, rent control is an overarching issue. And then- in New Jersey, there's there's state level, right? In fact, I shouldn't even move on from the municipality level because there's still municipality issues to deal with. So there's rent control issues, and then there's also certificate of blank issues, occupancy, conformity, whatever you might want to call it, habitability. Again, every city might have their own particular take on what this is. So um, some municipalities in New Jersey require you to. Uh, register with the city every time you get a new tenant, which could trigger an inspection. Some require you to do it when you sell the property. Some never require you to do it. Some require it for properties of certain numbers of units and above. So that's a whole nother regime. Again, the enforcement of these laws is scattershot in some cities at best, but it is something to be aware of. Once you've dealt with the municipal level issues, there in New Jersey are state level issues. In New Jersey, there's a state law that applies essentially to units, to buildings that have three or more families. And that requires its own registration, its own regulatory regime. And very frustratingly, the state and the municipality might be on very different pages about your compliance with various laws. It's, it's not uncommon in New Jersey for buildings to be in compliance or at least nominal compliance with the state law, but not in compliance with the city law, um, which is very frustrating because... Or, or the opposite. Or, or the opposite, but I, I would say that I've seen it more, they have a green card, but they don't have any... A green card is essentially the registration certificate that you get from the state if you have three or more <clears throat> units in a building. But I've seen it very frequently where they have a green card or they've registered with the state, but like the city has no idea what's going on. Right, and. Right. I'm thinking about it more so from uh, you just renovated a three-unit building. You closed out all your permits with the city through the building department. And then after that, you go for the green card inspection, and they come up with a whole new slew of things to tackle once you've already got it, got it occupied and tempted. Yeah. As Ryan just suggested, it can be very frustrating because you have two different regimes. They're not communicating with each other. They have no incentive to communicate with each other, but you're you're imposed to the burden of both of them, and they both carry monetary and real penalties if you don't comply with them. So that level of expertise, you know, if, if, if you're getting into larger buildings and you're getting into municipalities that are more heavily regulated, uh, which is like Northern New Jersey, I would say it's valuable to at least learn about these laws and be aware of them. Bigger pockets is a resource. Talking to other investors is a resource. Networking, as we said before in a previous Listening episode. Listening to this podcast Listening is a resource. Listening to this podcast, for sure. And we can go more in depth in future episodes in New Jersey-specific investing, mm -hmm. um, which is its own its own game. Yeah, and in some point, we're going to have an episode about short-term rentals, Airbnb rentals, which I think is a continuation in part of this property management conversation. Um, and that's it's a whole other legal regime oh and legal issues there, yeah. So in terms of uh, leasing... 
I realize this might be a quick step back, but is there anything you guys can advise or, or just give some context to? I'm, I'm actually curious because I've never seen your guys' leases. And I know also, Ryan, for example, some of your properties, we should talk about this in a second, um, have federally backed tenants. So uh, uh, Section 8 tenants, for example. And I'd be curious to know how that affects sort of the machinations of property management. But just generally speaking, just standard leases, or is there anything in particular you guys like or look for when you are leasing out your units? Well, uh, to the leasing question itself, a lot of this depends on what your level of interest in is in being a part of the process. So for some investors, they may choose to quote unquote self-manage, but if they, you know, they, they may be more so interested in just kind of dealing with the continuing nature of the management, but they want to leave the, the leasing part of it to a, an expert. So they'll, uh, they'll bring in a realtor and that realtor will then list it on the MLS and kind of handle all the showings. And in a lot of areas that burden financially may fall on the tenant, uh, in the form of, in the form of paying a broker fee. So notwithstanding the like limiting, you know, not, notwithstanding the fact that you're limiting the pool of tenants who may be interested in paying that broker fee, there's not necessarily a downside to doing that if you don't want to be doing it in the first place. Having said that, I think I think this the old adage holds true that nobody's going to care as much about your property as you are. So if you want to get it done right and quickly, then the best bet is probably to just suck it up and do it yourself. I know, I've actually heard this from a number of investors who had had a property, a rental property listed with an agent for a month or two, and they were getting kind of like intermittent feedback, and they were getting a little bit of traffic and. You know, it wasn't renting like they thought it would. And then they took matters into their own hands and listed it, just threw it on Craigslist, Facebook, Zillow. And through some combination of those listings, they were able to get it listed at the same price within a week, purely based on the fact that they were just responding to the inquiries and they were making an effort to get people into the property when they wanted to get in there. So I think a lot of this comes back to the financial incentives here because when you're talking about a $1,800 a month rental, the net fee, the net, the net commission to a broker might be five or $600 if they don't bring the tenant. So that's not going to, in most cases, it's not going to get somebody out of bed or it's not going to get somebody to forego their showing for a $500,000 sale property and, you know, make a, make them prioritize getting tenants in there. Yeah. I, I want to, maybe your point, Ben, can be addressed through the, the lens of tenant identification, which is what Ryan was alluding to. Like the actual lease itself, we can talk about a little bit and it's important to have a lease, but I think much more important is the process of finding tenants and identifying who they are. That's a, that's a deep topic. And I want to caveat delving into it by saying that it's very important to be aware of federal fair housing laws when you're finding tenants. So, I mean, it, it may be as obvious um, if you're at all in real estate, but you can't display discriminatory preferences to individuals when you are leasing properties or even selling properties um, based on things like race, religion, ethnic, cultural background. I'm not entirely sure if it's federally mandated, but I would just say logically it would be sexual orientation, things of that nature. So what that means as it applies to the leasing, the leasing realm is that, you know, you can't put up an ad saying I'm only looking for a person of a certain age or gender or, you know, race or whatever. I mean, 
realistically that does not happen anymore because people are aware of this. But it means beyond that, that if someone of a particular race or gender or ethnic background comes to your property to look at the property, you can't disqualify them on that basis. So usually as that... The way that that all filters down to finding tenants is that you need to apply objective criteria to tenants. One example is credit score. So you can you can certainly accept tenants. You can say, I won't accept tenants below a certain credit score, which is an objective criteria that you can apply to them. But it becomes much more, and it's not required, but it becomes much more suspect when you have a tenant who comes to you with a certain credit score and they might happen to be of a certain ethnic background and you reject them, that becomes more suspicious because you could say, well, I rejected them on the basis of their credit score, of which I have no actual criteria. Or you could say, well, maybe I rejected them on the basis of some other, you know, illegal or impermissible criteria. So that's a very high level overview of it. I don't think it's illustrative to go into the details of that in this episode, but it's very, very, very easy to find information about fair housing laws, fair housing acts. There also might be state-specific laws as well, but in general, just don't display discriminatory preferences towards tenants. I think that that's, it's 2019, so that's probably goes without saying. But having said all that, what I require, when I, when I look for tenants, one of the most important things to think about is how you're going to price the unit. So one thing I found in leasing is that you will, if you price your unit correctly, you will find normal tenants that are appropriate for that area. If you price your unit incorrectly, you will find abnormal tenants for that area. You probably will still find tenant applicants, but they will just not be normal. And one example that I have is, if you price your your unit higher than market rent, you will still find tenants, but they will be tenants that have something wrong with them, which disqualifies them from many apartments, and therefore they have to pay more, but will try to, for whatever reason, convince you that they you know, are, are okay renting your apartment. So for example, they might have a low credit score. They might have very low income. They might have an eviction on their record. They might have all sorts of stories, special conditions that may or may not be relevant to you, but are definitely going to disqualify them from the vast majority of apartments. So sometimes people will say, oh, you know, market rent for this area is $1,200 a month. And I'm listing my apartment at fourteen fifty a month just to see. Well, I guarantee that you'll get somebody to come to your apartment, but they're probably not going to be the class of tenant that you're going to want to rent to. So that's not that wasn't obvious to me before I started renting. But just because you can try to list your apartment for more money doesn't mean that you're going to... Just because you list your apartment for more money and you get interest doesn't mean that you haven't listed it for too much money. So... One, one theme that we've talked about in a number of different contexts is the theme of understanding what your costs are. And in this case, I think the way that that applies is understand that there's a cost of trying to get that maybe above market rental number, because in this, in this area in particular, if that is a problem tenant and you need to go through an eviction, the cost of that eviction, both in terms of lost rent and the legal costs associated with going through that eviction, whatever that difference is, is not going to be enough you're not going to be obtaining a significant enough premium yeah. to justify those added expenses. Right. And it's interesting for for somebody who doesn't have properties or rents to, to hear that perspective because you're talking about, right, if everybody wants to try to juice their rents as much as possible, but, but within a margin of what the market is, you can have 
an extremely volatile different outcome based on the quality of tenant and that poor quality of tenant to both their points. Yes, in the immediate might pay you a couple months at $200 more a month uh, than market, but then there could be all kinds of other issues which may lead to as, you know, a variety of outcomes, maybe eviction being being the worst case and destruction of the the unit itself. On the topic of pricing, one benefit to underpricing or mm-hmm. at least pricing something fairly is that you will get a, a wider sample of applicants from which to choose. And if you're looking at this as a long-term investment, your goal is going to be to obviously make things a little bit easier on yourself, but also to minimize vacancy. And if you have tenants in there who are paying a fair rental figure and they're qualified because you know they were the best of the crop from which you are choosing, then there's going there's some long term value to that stability as well. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So I, I I think step one in the tenant identification process is listing, you know, determining the appropriate rent for your unit. And you you can list it above what you think is market rent, but the caveat is what I said before about the quality of tenants and what we just talked about. The second thing for me is I like to at some point in the rental process these tenants will be met by somebody. It could be by you, it could be by your manager, it could be by a broker or whatever, but that interaction is usually quite important. Not, again, for determining their you know, uh, characteristics that you shouldn't discriminate on, but just for determining their possible quality as a tenant. For example, if they come into your unit and they bring you know, eight family members and you're renting a one-bedroom apartment and they say, oh, it's just going to be me and my husband, you know, that's problematic to me because I don't know why you'd be bringing, you know, your eight family members to look at this one bedroom unit if it's just you and your husband. The the biggest thing that I like to do when I when I meet tenants is explain to them what's going on, see their reaction, and then very importantly is have an application process for your tenants. A lot of landlords for some reason don't really do this or their application process is maybe verbal, but it's totally legal and totally appropriate, in my opinion, to have a written application, which alone will drastically remove a significant portion of the tenants that are going to be interested in your your property. So wherever you find the tenants, um, and I, I don't know if it's worthwhile to go into it because it's, you know, it can be region specific and you could use a broker, but however you find tenants, once they come to your apartment, some tenants will be interested, some won't be interested, some will waste your time, some will cancel on you, some will whatever. But if they actually submit an application, which is a written application, which requires them to actually write something and usually pay a fee, which is usually for a credit check or a background check, that alone will remove about 95% of people that are applying to your apartment. And many times I'll, I'll get tenants, particularly in in you know certain certain areas that say, I can't figure out how to fill out the application. And I can understand that to an extent if it's maybe online and they're elderly or they don't, you know, have access to a computer. But even if you then provide them with, say, a written application and they're unable to do it, that is a disqualification. Because if you're unable to convey to me the information that I request, for example, if you can't comply with my request for for a credit check or a background check because you can't sign an application or, or logistically get it to me in the amount of time that's required, you're probably not going to be a good tenant. Yeah. Um, and maybe there is an apartment for you somewhere else. But my criteria is that you need to fill out an application in some manner. It has to be written so that I can submit it to 
a credit agency and a background agency and you have to pay me a fee so that I can pay the credit and background agency to do it. And the, normally I use a website called Cozy, which I'm a big fan of. Cozy um, also will syndicate your listing to a certain certain websites online. I don't really use them so much for the marketing aspect of it, but their application process I found is great. Their fees are very low and reasonable for tenants and the information that they give you is usually very comprehensive. So they'll give you information like the credit score, which will not be just a number, but will include things like credit inquiries, uh, derogatory factors in their credit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They'll include a background check, but the background check won't just say positive or negative. It'll it'll include things like, you know, here is an eviction, which is obviously a big negative to, you know, here is a, you know, misdemeanor that they got eight years ago when they were a college student, which is probably less of an issue. All these factors are important because, you know, sometimes you'll find with tenants, uh, tenants will come to you and first of all, my, my favorite tenants are the ones that come to you and say, you know, I say, okay, well, in order to rent the apartment, you know, there's uh, we do a credit check and we only accept credit scores above X or whatever it might be. And they'll say, oh, great. You know, my credit is, um, is perfect. I'll say, oh, fantastic. And then I'll run their credit score and their credit score is like 530, you know, something ridiculously low. I'll be like, wow. Like, uh, you know, that's... They always wonder why they just, why, why say it? I mean, maybe they're trying to speak it into existence. Right. I mean, that, that's really concerning to me because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a total obliviousness. And it's also lying. It's either yeah. lying to me or being or, so oblivious yeah. that they have no idea. And on the contrary, sometimes tenants will come to me and say, hey, I just want to be really upfront. I had a hard time three years ago. You know, I had to declare bankruptcy because um, I got divorced or someone died or some, some, you know, I lost my job. Some factor like that happened. And then you see their credit score and you say, you know, their credit score is bad, but everything stems from this one incident. You know, it's like a two-month period of time when all their credit card bills were laid and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that still is not, you know, necessarily good. Their credit score might be low for, for, for that purpose, but at least they've explained it and then you can evaluate that as you might take it. You know, the, the same is true with background checks. Like sometimes people will say, I've never been evicted, no eviction. Then you go on and, and then it's very obvious that the reason they're looking for a new apartment is because they just got evicted for the previous apartment. <laughs> you know, so it, it's it's stunning because you'll, you'll tell people like, look, I'm going to do a credit check and a background check. Not even saying like, is there anything I should be aware of? Just just to let you know, I'm going to do then, it. And they look and at you they, say, good, go do it. And then they be proactive <laughs> and be like, not only did you not ask me about it, but I'm going to tell you how great I am. And uh, then you do it in the, <laughs> the opposite. So uh, um, It's like, yeah, you got me. <laughs> Have a nice life. <laughs> I mean, you'll be it's, yeah. it's amazing well, how frequent that happens. It's interesting to hear that too. So when I graduated from high school, actually, originally I worked for a property manager and it, it's worth noting that every property manager to an extent does some variation of the process that John just described. And I know for us, like we had obviously a credit check fee and a written application, a background check. And it's funny now hearing John, I never really thought about exactly why we did. I mean, I just always assume, but hearing that methodology, I realized, oh, that's why we do it. But we also asked for like a good faith deposit, which you can do, I guess, which is was fully refundable. For some reason, you didn't uh, get approved and a certain amount of security, which you guys can talk about more being the landlords in the room. But that is, that is very funny. And it, I think one of the things about property management is you can kind of take some, some, you got to roll with the funny moments when they come. Cause I, I imagine it can be extremely stressful and operational stress. Uh, so oftentimes you're going to see people and, and things that probably you wouldn't believe, especially in very specific areas in yeah. wider New Jersey. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stress can be oftentimes people will just waste your time. And that's why it's, it's sometimes valuable to have a, a property manager slash realtor. Degree agent. of distance. Yeah. Because pe people will, I, I mean, I, 
there's so many times when people will say, I'm so excited about this apartment. I'm going to come see it. I'm going to be oh, right there. Classic. And then, yeah. you know, they never show up or they'll, they'll say, oh, I'll be there at one and you rearrange your whole schedule to be there at one. And they're like, oh, you know, I, um, running late, I'll be there at four. Yeah. It's like, how can well, you be running three hours <laughs> yeah. late? I mean, that's insane. Right? Well, that's so. funny because, and that's, and it's different when, you know, it's like whether if you, you are a property manager or work for a property manager versus being an individual owner as well, your time constraints are very different and your time value is, is very different. So that's, right. that's, that was always a brutal one. A lot of the a lot of the things that you put in place here, a lot of the things that John just alluded to, they're qualifiers and then they're they serve as a filter for a lot of the bad applicants that you would otherwise receive. And while I'm sure there are plenty of applicants who will just outright ignore the fact that you're saying up front it's going to be a month and a half security deposit, the rent is going to be this much, the credit score qualification is this. Uh, that, you know, there are plenty of people who are going to apply anyway and just think they can get around it. But there all also are a number of people who probably don't apply and who you filter out and ultimately, you know, that they don't waste your time because you're upfront about that stuff. And I think it's, it's super helpful to do that because it's only going to rear its ugly head at some point. So it's better to, you know, filter out who you can still have your process to kind of verify that your requirements are being fulfilled. But, you know, ultimately you're only hurting yourself by not having these restrictions in there and being upfront about them. So you may as well throw it out there upfront and you may as well put some thought into what your criteria actually is. Just having some sort of process to, to wean out yeah. the and, best possible applicants. And having rules as well. Like if you don't want to have pets in your apartment, that's appropriate, but you need to be upfront about that. So you can't, you know, you can't, what sometimes happens is that people will try to fool you and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm not going to bring a dog or something. I'm not going to bring a cat, but then they actually do, you know, that's a violation of your lease. And that that's, yeah. so that that's a serious problem. It's not a problem to be like, oh, oops, like we just forgot about it. Like that's a serious problem. The same is true with occupancy, right? If you have a single, single bedroom apartment and you say, look, I only want to rent it to two or fewer people or three or fewer people, that's appropriate because renting it to more people can be a fire hazard or a safety hazard. And somebody moves in, they have six people that's not okay. That That's a serious problem. So being firm about the rules and saying like, here's what I expect is we'll set the tone for, for the entire relationship and also will prevent you from getting into serious trouble, possibly even like legal trouble with, um, if there's a, a an insurable issue or a fire or whatever might happen. And, and having thought about that and having kind of codified this in your own way also makes it a little bit easier to enforce it down the road. Because if somebody comes to you and says, can I, you know, can my daughter and son-in-law move in here or can I have a dog or a cat or any other number of requests it's a lot easier to say no I'm sorry we have you know specific company management wide policy that prohibits this versus saying you know no I'm just I'm just going to be the bad guy today and tell you no so right. out of curiosity, uh, we talked about some of the thresholds of getting tenants in and, and what are the kind of standards that you can outline uh, to try to get in the most qualified tenants at paying the maximum rent you possibly can for the area. I'm curious, you get a tenant in there and they don't pay rent or they're violating their, as we just talked about, maybe it's the animal policy or it's again, just being late on rent, what have you. What are your processes and what are, are certain methods property managers can take to try to address these issues, very common issues. Uh, so there are a lot of property, there are property managers that operate on both sides of the spectrum and either side of the spectrum can be 
can be very negative. There are property managers who are extremely lackadaisical and have no conception of what's happening at their unit or their apartment and literally just show up to collect a rent check. Um, that's bad for obvious reasons because you're probably not solving problems. You're probably not aware of what's going on in your, in your units or your buildings. So that can cause a whole host of issues. The other extreme, which you might think doesn't happen, but I've actually seen all the time, and in fact, Ryan and I have been talking about this recently, are property managers or landlords that are so involved in the lives of their tenants that it's it truly becomes a problem. You have, and, and on, on both ends of the spectrum, your behavior will set the expectation in the tenants. So if you're the sort of property manager that doesn't deal with anything, then tenants will never tell you when there's a problem because they just expect that you're not going to deal with it. On the flip side, if you're the property manager that is really involved in every aspect of your tenant's life, they will tell you everything that's wrong, even things that are unreasonable for you to care about or fix and expect you to be involved with them. So like I, I know landlords that have gotten into like roommate disputes with their with their tenants, which are totally beyond the scope, I would say, of a, of a landlord to the extent that you know if they're all in the lease or whatever, like I don't care what happens as long as you pay, I, I don't care if you don't like your your roommate that you yourself picked, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, tenant that, uh, landlords that will do things like, you know, if there's a, a slight minor issue in some, you know, totally irrelevant way to the apartment where they'll move heaven and earth to, to fix this very minor bizarre issue that is like maybe unfixable or just is not economically viable to fix that nobody would really care about. You wouldn't care about if you lived there. So there, there's a whole range of spectrums. Maybe Ryan, you can, I mean, you know, people like this also, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly echo those same sentiments. I would like to point out on the larger scale side of things, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it does speak to the point of as a property manager, having your pulse on the property. I know it's pretty common in the investment space to buy a 50 unit apartment building and to approach the investment from a value add perspective with the intention of getting rents up. And as we alluded to in the last episode, bumping NOI and improving the property that way. But oftentimes one impediment to that is that you may have a certain cross-section of your tenant pool that is involved in some type of illicit behavior or that is doing something to otherwise stigmatize that building, that community, that block maybe. And one benefit of being a property manager who has your pulse on the property is you know who those one or two bad eggs are in the building. And if you nip that issue in the bud, then you may not get to the point where your building is only 50% occupied because nobody wants to stay there because you know that because they know that the building is, you know, a, a haven for drug dealers or you know, if there's other if there's other behavior there that other that is going to deter your tenants from wanting to live somewhere where all they want is just a safe, quiet, secure place. Yeah, and I think part of the issue one big name of the game is communication. I mean, this is the case for like whenever there's problems or conflict, but in the property management space, being responsive to tenant issues is important, even if your response is no, I won't deal with it. So, you know, I, I had a tenant recently that, um, this is in fact in the same building that we had an issue with the heating and the hot water from a flood. And we had to make a small hole in her wall to fix some plumbing. And 
for various reasons, we had to leave the hole uncovered for two or three days. And, you know, this is like a hole maybe six inches by six inches in, in a corner of a room. And the heating was working, the water was working, everything was on just that so there was this hole in the room. And she said, you know, will you pay for a hotel for me because of this issue? And I certainly didn't ignore her, but I just said, no, like that's not reasonable um, for me to do that. And I don't want to be, and you know, she had all these reasons why she didn't want to do it and, and why it was such an inconvenience for her and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, look, I don't want to be inconsiderate to your concerns and your, you know, maybe unique life history that makes it so that this is very inconvenient to you. But from a, the perspective of my duties as a landlord to you, this is not an appropriate thing for me to do. So no, like we can't do that. And so, so, you know, being the, the bad guy, I guess, in that context is definitely a necessary thing. Um, to your original point, Ben, about like what happens when things go wrong, you know, a lot of it is like communication. So hopefully you have tenants and you have a relationship with tenants such that they'll tell you when things are going wrong. Like if they're going to be late on rent, they'll tell you in advance, like, hey, I'm having a problem. That still is not necessarily okay or great, but at least you're informed. But if you're not communicative or your tenants aren't communicating with you and you know, the, the day to collect rent comes and there's no rent, that is a big problem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the worst tenants that I've had are ones that either don't communicate, will lie, or stop communicating when things go wrong. So, you know, we have, Ryan and I have a tenant, have several tenants right now in a, in a building where we inherited tenants from the previous owner. And, you know, we we're talking earlier in the episode about how that can be problematic. You know, we have, these tenants are are super bad. They're, they're bad because the their expectation for communication set by the previous landlord was totally off so they don't say when things are wrong or they they will over communicate when certain irrelevant things are wrong they won't tell me about when rents do they have all sorts of crazy uh, assumptions i mean I, I had one one tenant claim that he believed that you know so rent is generally paid in the first of the month for the month that you're you're in he claimed that uh his belief was that rent should be paid at the end of the month for the prior month that he'd already lived in the building for which is just i've never heard of that yeah. um and i mean he, and, it, and it's like sir what does that have to do with you having not paid rent for three months <laughs> right so it's like i feel like usually it's a microcosm of a water yeah. issue yeah so to return your initial question like when yeah. things go wrong step one is communication and just yes. understanding what's happening and certainly there are legitimate reasons why people can be late in rent that are not eviction quality events yes but knowing what they are will prevent that from happening. Although so. I would imagine, and I think you, I think anybody would agree with the sentiment that if you feel like a tenant relationship is going in that direction to probably document uh, as much as you can or, or keep track of as much as you can in terms of any issues you've had with a tenant. Yeah. Text messaging and email have been great boons for that as opposed to verbal conversations. So a lot of times I communicate with tenants through text and that's a great medium for just keeping information right there. Um, you know, the, the ultimate, the ultimate problem with a tenant is when they are, you know, the, a tenant can do a lot of things to, to make it such that they can't live in your unit anymore, or you, you won't allow them to live in your unit anymore. And Obviously, if you just don't like the tenant personally or, you know, whatever, you you just don't think they're good tenants, that probably in alone is not enough to qualify for you to remove them from their property if they're not violating their lease agreement. It might be a justification if you're not in a rent controlled or rent stabilized or whatever situation for you to not renew their lease in the future. However, th there, there are overarching legal issues, as I alluded to before, that might cause that to happen. But generally, the number one reason why people get evicted or why leases end or because of 
a violation with the lease, which is usually non-payment of rent or habitually late payment of rent. Other issues could be, you know, they are subletting your apartment without your consent. They have other people living in the apartment without your consent. They're violating some rule that you've imposed, like with animals, <clears throat> with uh, doing illegal activities in your unit. Uh, maybe they're destroying your unit. They're inconveniencing other tenants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I've very rarely ever dealt with the latter, but non-payment of rent is, or late payment of rent is a reality. If you manage enough properties in any area, affluent or poor, you will find people that are going to be late with rent or not pay rent. I just want to say, out of curiosity, or ask out of curiosity now, sort of having now gone through most of the rental process and management process for market tenants, I do want to have a quick conversation about rent control, rent stabilization, and and Section Eight as it pertains to units that we that we have or that you have, Ryan. So maybe you guys can take uh, us through a little bit in the same overarching context. What is the difference, if there is one, between managing at market tenants and rent control, rent stabilized Section Eight tenants? Maybe outside of just the obvious fact that that there's a certain cap on rental increases, et cetera. Sure. Well, I think it's worthwhile to take a step back and just to think about what Section 8 is and what, what that really means. Yes. Um, so the way that it generally works in the context of, you know, the two to four, one to four family rentals is a quote unquote Section 8 tenant comes to the landlord with essentially a Section 8 voucher. A, I think it's called a, a HAP voucher for Housing Assistance Program. And that voucher is generally good for a particular amount of money per month. Generally, as uh, there's, there's a formula that's generally based on either affordability metrics for the area or a percentage of that tenant's income um, that should be allocated to rent. And then the tenant picks up one portion of the rent and the Section 8 voucher covers the rest. So in this context, these Section 8 vouchers are essentially a, it's, it's a means of the government stepping in and providing housing assistance to lower income families. And just as a quick caveat, there are a lot of programs like this. Section 8 is one particular program that's operated by it's funded by the federal government, although it's actually operated by municipalities. But there are many, many, many programs like this for low income or disabled or other category of tenant where for whatever reason they have government assistance to rent a unit. And, and well, Section 8 is the most common one that landlords will deal with. But all of these things that I think Ryan is about to say will apply mm -hmm. in a similar manner to a lot of these programs. And and sometimes you may find tenants who are using a combination of one or two or right. maybe three different programs. So to me, the overarching theme is the same. You want, you want tenants who are going to abide by the lease. You want tenants who are not going to create issues and who have realistic expectations regardless of whether they're market tenants or whether they are paying through some means of housing assistance. When it comes to Section 8 or other housing programs, I think you generally find within the investor community, you'll generally find that investors are either really far on either end of the spectrum. So they either love them and swear by them, or they had one bad experience with it and have written off these programs entirely. Um, I think the reality of the situation is that it's it's case by case. You're going to have excellent tenants who are on some form of housing assistance, and you're going to have some tenants who are 
quite subpar when it comes to these or on these housing assistance programs. Um, and it's on you as the landlord to screen them appropriately and to ensure that regardless of what their means of payment are, that they are qualified to lease your space. Right. So in my experience, you know, government subsidized tenants, first of all, in general, you will find a very wide array of, of tenants that have government subsidies. Some Section 8 tenants will be in Section 8, you can just, you know, parenthetically in your mind for government subsidized tenants. Some Section 8 tenants will be fantastic and some will be terrible. And as Ryan alluded to, they the the voucher, which is the amount that the Section 8 tenants rent will be covered, can vary a lot. It can be 100% of your rent to much less than that. Back of the envelope sort of high level talking, usually tenants that pay more money even though this sounds counterintuitive, are better tenants because they have more of a financial stake in where they live. If you have a tenant who's paying truly zero because the government program that they're on pays their entire rent, they have really no financial incentive to do or be anything in your apartment. And although this hasn't happened to me, I know people that it's happened to, these tenants can just trash your apartment because they have really no financial consequences for that happening. So if they, for whatever reason, don't like you or are having a bad day, they can really cause you financial penalty without themselves being financially at risk. To be fair, their, their ram- or the ramifications of their behavior in that situation would be that they would lose their right. housing assistance payment, which is not insignificant. Out of curiosity, does the, does the federal assistance cover things like credit check fees and security deposits? Like if you're renting to one of those tenants, what is the, pro- is the process different in terms of the source of, of funds for those initial fees? Or no, the tenant is still on the hook for, for those payments? It, it depends on the program. Okay. Um, <clears throat> oftentimes, as, as Ryan and alluded to before, tenants can use multiple programs. So, you know, I have a, a tenant in, in one of my properties that isn't actually a Section 8 tenant, as in she pays market rent out of her own pocket. However, for her security deposit, she the, her security deposit was paid through a program through the city of Newark that provides emergency housing relocation because her building was condemned or something like that. And so she didn't get her deposit back or she might at some point or whatever. So there's a whole variety. And yes, there is assistance for application fees and you know whatever else might be in relocation fees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, one other downside to a lot of these programs is they are generally administered by some agency. So in this case, I think there's either, I don't know if it's at the city level or at the county level, but there is a, a local Section 8 office that administers the program mm-hmm. in each of these locales. And those offices um, will conduct periodic inspections. I don't know if it's, is it yearly or biannually? I don't know. I think it, I'm not entirely sure. It certainly depends on the program, mm-hmm. but it, it, it happens not infrequently. Right. Um, but But just as we alluded to earlier with the state and the city having different requirements, this just adds a third layer of oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just another body that comes out and will say, hey, you need to paint this wall or you need to fix this door or you need to do that. It's not necessarily that these things are unreasonable. It's it's just that the frequency with which these things happen and the ramifications of not being in compliance, whether mm-hmm. these requirements are reasonable or not, can be significant. Um, if they're not cured within a certain period of time, they will stop paying the rent. And it, it's just it's just another source of 
of frustration. Yeah, it, it, it's bureaucracy, and and to be honest, a lot of these programs are not administered mm-hmm. particularly well. Right, and that can be very frustrating from a landlord perspective. Like one of the craziest things that that uh, we've had to deal with, I think, is um, we have a Section Eight tenant who is very habitually late with uh, her rent. She always seems to manage to pay it, but um, is very late normally. And you know her her income portion, her portion of the rent is maybe like a third or something of the total rent for the unit. So most of the rent comes from you know the the local Section Eight office. Mm-hmm. However, if she is late on her rent, she will be out of the program, which means that we won't get Section Eight income anymore. So it's a pretty perverse incentive where. I'm actually incentivized if I want to get that two thirds of her rent. And if I think that at some point she will actually pay, I'm actually incentivized to tell the section eight office she's paying her rent on time so that I get the two thirds of the rent, which is because, just ridiculous, right? If I say that she's out of the program, boom, she's out of the program. You know, if I say she didn't pay rent this month, you know, they, they, they want to be helpful to me. So they say, Oh great. Well, she's out of the program. Well, okay, fine. But now I have to, that doesn't mean that she leaves the apartment. Right. It just means that through some sort of eviction, right? It just means that and, I don't get the section eight, component anymore. So then I have to evict her, which in New Jersey is a multi-month process. I have to go through everything else involved with that, try to get money from her for those other months without Section 8 assistance. It's just not going to happen. Is there a process where you can document through Section 8 or other programs like this, hey, listen, they're late, but they've been paying. So I just want to note this for if I need to pursue other options down the line. Or they, it's either it's an all or nothing game with these federal programs. These are two different regimes. So there's, there's the Section 8 regime and then there's okay. the eviction regime well but so, i just mean for section eight purposes right because you're saying that if you don't tell them that she's paying he or she is paying on time they'll revoke the well, federal funding well you can accept you, you can say she's paying late but i have no problem with that yes, that's fine okay. or you could even say hypothetically she doesn't pay rent at all but that's no problem to me you know you can, i'll just you take your two-thirds and okay yeah you can do whatever you want i mean okay. there, there's no like requirement i mean the the relevancy though is that if you want to evict her you know a as we said before a legitimate legally okay reason for eviction is habitually late payment of rent mm-hmm. but i don't i don't doesn't there's, there's no inconsistency in my mind from saying she's still in the section eight program or he's still in the section eight program because i'm okay with the fact that they're paying rent late however i'm going to pursue eviction for them because they're paying rent late mm-hmm. i mean that might be a little weird but i mean i'm sure that that happens all the time if you wanted to i mean normally again in section eight the majority of your rent is coming from the Section Eight program, mm-hmm. so yeah, it may suck to get you know a third or less of the rent late. But if you're if you have a Section Eight tenant and they're generally okay, otherwise, like that's probably an okay calculus for you to make. Is say, look, I get the late rent. It's late every ten. It's late by ten days every month, but at least I get it, and then I get my eighty percent from Section Eight. Like mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. Like that's fun. So. Transitioning now from from Section 8 to maybe and, and other federally backed programs to rent control and rent stabilization. And it's important to note, I know that's not the purpose of this episode, but to, to understand that when you're investing in properties that classify or have tenants in these programs or under certain types of, of rent control or stabilization, that that should and will change your investment thesis. But now I, I know in the city from my previous work experience that, for example, New York City, New York City sorry, excuse me. I just assume that you all know. Uh, didn't you roll out the red carpet? Did you know I was from New York? Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Just there's no pretension the on this New York show. Post that's constantly up to my car. Hey, the, might the, be you mean you like, mean the People's Paper? The people's Paper. I'm scared to say that on this show because that's going to catch on. I need to trademark that. So more importantly, looking at the way that, for example, rent stabilization grows, I know it was usually uh, like mandated between one and four percent per year. 
of the of whatever rent it was below a certain threshold in New York. So I'm just curious to know, like in Union City, for example, where there are very strict rent control and stabilized rules, what the process is for a landlord there and what to expect if you're if you're managing a property that has these kinds of controls on them. The benchmark that most rent control programs are based upon is CPI, Consumer Price Index. Um, generally, there's a permissible increase of maybe a set a set amount like three percent, or so it's either the greater of three per, or the greater or the lesser of three percent or CPI. Sometimes it's CPI plus two percent, and oftentimes there are other permissible increases. For example, if you have to go in and replace a roof and your apartments are all falling apart and you have to spend $50,000 in capital expenditures, there's generally some type of capital expenditures increase that you can pass through. Sometimes it burns off after it's been quote unquote repaid. Other times it it becomes the new baseline. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole, as we alluded to before in New Jersey, each city has their own particular rules and regulations. And so it's very hard to say a blanket statement about how it works. But for the purposes of you as a property investor, it's important to know, as Ryan said, what the permiss- well, first of all, it's important to know, is my building subject to rent control at all? Because there are reasons why your building might be and, and might not be, even if the general rule is that all buildings above X are rent controlled, yours may or may not be for various reasons. If it is, then the question is, what is my permissible increase in rents, as Ryan alluded to? And also, are there other exemptions that might allow me to decontrol or reset rents? So one exemption that's pretty common is decontrol on vacancy. So while a tenant is in the unit, they the rents can't be increased by a certain amount. But when they leave the unit and the unit is quote unquote vacant, you can then reset rents to market rate. That's sometimes happens in New Jersey. I, um, depends on the city. The other more extreme version is that the rent, the stated rents or the registered rents follow the follow the unit regardless of its vacancy status. So even if the unit's vacant for a year, it's still subject to the same rent control regime laws that have been in place prior to you prior to it being vacant. And sometimes it requires that the entire building become vacant before so you can't decontrol unit by unit. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the entire building must go vacant. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, all of this stuff is extremely nuanced and the only way to truly understand it if you're going to make an investment uh, of this scale is to read through the rent control policies in detail. There are always little nuances to it that can either be an opportunity or an impediment. It may be an opportunity to pass a cost through and to make, you know, to make the numbers work, or it may be an impediment to what your strategy may have otherwise been. Mm-hmm. So it's important to note what, what all these little limitations are. Yeah. And just as a large big picture thing, it's really important to know that when you buy a property, it could be subject to rent control in some of these areas. I've, I've seen it far too often where some person buying a property will say, oh, well, my, uh, my, my real estate agent said there's no rent control. And, you know, I might be familiar with the municipality be, well, that's not true. I mean, like your, your unit will be, con- will be subject to rent control unless it's, you know, open to whatever exemptions or exceptions that I don't know are applicable. So don't, like your realtor is incentivized to sell you the property and they might not know the truth. Even everybody involved in the transaction might not know the truth. Maybe the landlord, the the current owner of the building that you're buying, thinks it's not subject to rent control, but it really is. And that's the problem because... Huge, huge um, difference. 
you know, at some point you're probably going to be hit with that during your ownership of it. And it's certainly going to affect the value of the property as well. So like, we'll, you know, I'll see units, I'll see buildings in Hudson County say that are every city in Hudson County has its own form of rent control, but it's usually very strict and I'll see six unit buildings and they'll be going for, you know, a million plus dollars, which would be market for a six unit building if it wasn't rent controlled. But then you look and see the registered rents are half of the market rents and that reduces the value of the building by 50%. Mm. And, you know, if you don't know that, like, you know, basically either the owner of that building is looking for someone dumb enough to not know that there are rent control laws or himself has no idea about rent control laws and just been illegally renting all of his units out for however long. In either way, it's a big problem for you and you should inform yourself. Even sometimes lawyers will not know this information, particularly because of the nuances in in New Jersey specifically of city by city, municipality by municipality laws. So either ask someone knowledgeable or ask your lawyer to look into it or do the research yourself. All this is not to say don't buy rent control buildings. It's more so to say, understand what you're buying before you do. Because at the end of the day, there are still some advantages while few. Um, There are some advantages to owning these types of buildings. One of which is the fact that if you have... If you have a tenant who's been in an apartment for 15 years paying $1,000 a month in a unit that would otherwise rent for $2,000 a month, then that tenant is highly incentivized to do whatever is necessary to stay in that apartment, whether that means prioritizing paying rent or not being a thorn in your side or a thorn in the side of the landlord or, you know, just keeping the place in general, you know, generally good condition. There are some advantages to that when it comes to occupancy and when it comes to stability. But, you know, at the end of the day, the numbers are what the numbers are. Yeah, and, and very briefly, not not about management per se, but if you want to be if you want to be a value add investor and you're buying a rent controlled building, that's going to pretty significantly limit your opportunities to add value to that building. Because as we've talked about in previous episodes, in an ideal world, the value of a of an investment rental property is a function of your income, your gross income, which are your rent and your expenses. And assuming your expenses are generally going to be fixed, if you can't increase rents, increase income, then the value of your building is not going to increase. So buying a rent controlled building where there are truly no opportunities to ever decontrol it or raise rents or do whatever else you're either hoping on a the law to change which has happened but or b you have no appreciation value add play you're just happy with the cash flow as it is and you're going to increase it at 2% a year and that's it so Excellent, gentlemen. Last question before we head out, because we all have dealt with this and are dealing with this. I'm going to talk about market tenants here, not not uh, stabilized, controlled, or or uh, federally backed tenants. Security deposit. How do you guys operate with that? I think there's always a lot of questions, and sometimes that can be the most contentious aspect of a, of a lease period at the end for a market rate tenant. Obviously, the standard would be if something goes wrong, you use that money, a portion of that money to fix issues. But do you guys have certain thoughts on it or, or policies on it? My I'm one testing thought, you. My one thought on this is that you're bringing this up to to bring to the forefront your sterling rep, record. I was not of- going to bring it up. <laughs> I was not going to. I promise I wasn't. I just ben, was curious. Ben prides himself on having his... <laughs> His security deposit returned I'm gonna, in full okay. in Am every I apartment start a he's ever business lived in. <laughs> specifically consulting on how to get your security deposit back? Yes, that is true. But I, I promise I wasn't going to bring it now, up. Notwithstanding I just to put that, it in your mind. <laughs> notwithstanding that, um, the topic of support of security deposits is an important one. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of in a lot of situations, your security or the security deposit 
that you are holding on to, maybe your only point of leverage in a dispute with a tenant. Um, that's not to say it's something that you should be holding over their head and exploiting. But if you have a tenant who has not paid rent, if you have a tenant who has or who may trash the apartment, um, has any reason to be upset with you, whether it's justified or not, if you're holding on to a month or a month, month and a half uh, worth of rent in the form of a security deposit, then that's one that's one thing that's at least going to deter them from doing that. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I very rarely have taken people's security deposits or a portion of the security deposit. I mean, respect the you know the like the idea from a landlord perspective is that there's going to be reasonable wear and tear. I mean, this is even a legal issue about the the legal bases on why you can keep a security deposit. But yeah. you know, reasonable wear and tear would be things like little dings, nicks, holes in the wall. I mean, I, I anticipate basically every unit is going to have to be repainted in between tenants. Yep. But unreasonable things would be like they've punched a hole into my wall or they've ripped up flooring or they've destroyed a vanity or something like that. And obviously some of it is dependent too on the length of time the tenant has been there. Like a tenant there for a year is going to be a lot different than a tenant there for 10 years, for example. So it, it's... um hard to say a blanket blanket statement but for me it goes back to tenant selection again mm. so if you if you select quality tenants and and then beyond that if you communicate with them you know a um one thing i like to do is for a lot of my units i provide pest control services which means that an exterminator goes into all my units and will spray for bugs and that's a great excuse to just get in the unit i mean obviously tell the tenants in advance this is going to happen and and set their expectation for it but that's a great rationale for getting in the unit every month to just see what's going on so well, you know really, I've, really clever yeah i've gone into yeah. units before and, it, and and you'll see crazy stuff like i was in a unit um not too long ago where the tenant had deadbolt or had put in a a huge lock to the basement which is a common basement and where all the utilities were and the water shut off the electricity sh- shut off and didn't give anyone the key like <laughs> only they had the key and i you know and obviously at some point I would have figured that out, but I, you know, uh, I think it had happened maybe a few days before or something. And I was like, you know, this is crazy. Like you, you, would have, you would have tenant. figured it out That's when you amazing. had a leaky boiler in the basement right. and you had to get in there in an emergency. I mean, the response was like, oh, I didn't even think about it, blah, 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 blah. You know, something crazy or like mm-hmm. I'm storing my stuff down there, which is think about it. You but, actively brought someone in to deadbolt the door to the basement. <laughs> It's crazy. It's I mean, crazy. Um, yeah. you know, so, so, so or, or, you know, oh more God. people are nuts. Yeah. More crazier things will be like, yeah. they've taken down every smoke detector in your unit or they've like, um, blocked the uh, escape door or they've made it so that every window is inoperable, you know, things yeah. like that, that are safety issues that could be, have ramifications on you, but you know, also are just, you know, I don't want you to die in my apartment. So absolutely. Um, this isn't, this isn't on the, on the topic of, of security deposits per se, but while we're at it, I think John's story there reminds me of a few things that I think are worth touching on just when it comes to setting expectations with with tenants. John, I don't know how you feel about this, but do you have anything that you either put in leases up front or, or divulge to your tenants at the beginning to kind of like set certain expectations? Like I know one thing that we put in that I think has been recommended to me by a few other investors is to say that as a blanket statement, any repairs under $100 or so are on the tenant's shoulders so that you're not getting calls about things like light bulbs needing to be replaced. Do you have anything like that as a general um, operating practice? I don't do things like dollar amounts, but I will I will do things like, I'll, I will have rules about keeping things clear from access ways, pets, 
pest control is a big one. Lead paint is a big one. Like that's a whole other topic that we mm-hmm. can get into. But um, lead paint, anything trash or recycling. I know we've gotten trash or recycling dinged in the past mm-hmm. for yeah. new tenants move into a space, and we weren't as clear as we should have been about the city's requirements for trash and recycling, mm-hmm. and so we ended up getting right. or or even that. just the expectation that they need to be taking their trash out to the curb or not, for example. Um, yeah, I've never heard about the dollar amount one. I, I think... Um, I mean, the, obvi- the obvious downside to it is if you get a tenant who tries to interpret that too literally and they see something that they could probably fix for under $100 and they take that on and then they do it incorrectly and it either needs to be redone in the future by you or it leads to a bigger problem. And that's, yeah. and that's obviously <clears throat> counterintuitive. I, I, would but, al- I would prefer them to call me and then just for me to say no right. then for yeah. them to just not even bother because they have then i mean let's be honest people don't read these leases so it is what it is but it's, it's um, like the agreements on itunes you know you're just you're just clicking i accept we all know it yeah. take all my information <laughs> right i mean and, and that, that is problematic because they're you it know is. there yeah. there are enforceability concerns with some of these leases that you can really get into if you have you know litigation relating from it but i was going to say too to that that last point about reading your lease you know I remember the first lease I signed on, on my first apartment in the city that deep buried in, you know, section 24, you know, subsection one, sub subsection one a or something. There was a little uh, note about a, no matter what, a $500 move out fee um, that was just affiliated for no purpose other than to further take money from you as you, as you went out, there was no stipulations. It was literally just a move out fee. Mm-hmm. So by catching that before we signed, by reading through the lease, we were able to have that taken out of the property. You know, I'm not saying everyone's trying to get you, but it's, it's worth doing your due diligence when you're signing a lease, and as a property manager, to probably well, not do like things for like for commercial that. leases. Oh my god, well, it's not even. I mean, it's it's like it's like going to lease a car and having a 36 month lease, and then them charging you a disposition fee at the end. Well, it's like my lease is over. Obviously, How the car to has me? to be <laughs> exactly. returned. Why do I? Why am I getting charged? Like, right. should that be built into it? So, I think the moral of the story here, to sum up, uh, of what has been a very informative property management episode is uh, first and foremost, preparedness, making sure you have the right contacts when you endeavor yourself to start out as a property manager, understanding and creating a process for identifying and leasing up your units and and working with tenants, and then also understanding the market around you and what is your thesis for property management, right? What kind of tenants are you managing and, and tailoring, I think, your process and processes to dealing with issues to whatever type or, or uh, kind of rentals uh, you're working with. Yeah. If I can touch very briefly on the team aspect, sure. which is, um, so probably the, the, the most important person that I used when I was getting started is my handyman, whose name is El Chapo. Um, no relation to the more famous El Chapo. <laughs> R- Ramon is his, um, is his uh, Christian name, shall we say. Um, <laughs> but He's, um, we actually found him by going to a hardware store locally and we said, Hey, who is, who's a guy that chops here a lot? Like, is there someone that you'd recommend? Um, which is a great technique for finding local guys that um, are active in the area. And we found, found him through that context. And he is what I would say, like the definition of a handyman. He also can do larger projects and he actually works for us now in our construction company, but he can do a little bit of almost everything. Um, and if he doesn't know how to do it, he probably knows somebody else that can do it. So he's been fantastic because, you know, if even when I was living in, in a unit of a building that I rented out, 
if I had a small emergency or a small issue that I couldn't fix, like a small leak or whatever, the fact that he was responsive and was able to do it and I didn't have to call a billion different people, you know, I, I wouldn't call him like my property manager because I didn't pay him a flat fee and I paid him like per job. But just that, just his, his being there was very, very important to me. And I don't think I would have had the confidence to expand the way that I did without him. So when you're starting, if you're thinking about expanding in a particular area, finding even not a property manager, but just like a handyman type person that you can reliably call on for a range of small issues. I mean, I'm talking about like the toilets clogged, like whatever else is, is going to be very important. It's been very helpful. One thing that John's point here just reminded me of is, is another point that we've actually discussed at length in the past. And it's the idea of managing, of, of self-managing properties at some point in your real estate career. I know it's it's actually something that I personally sh- dislike strongly. I would say I, something I loathe really is is property management. But at least our, our first rental property, I still manage that along with my brother. And while it is frustrating, it, it's been a truly uh, formative experience in my real estate career because it's 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 put to it's brought to light the reality of owning property, both the good and the bad. The reality is that it's it's not as scary as I may have thought, but it also does come with with certain challenges. And there's no substitute, in my opinion, for first-hand experience. And you know, I think regardless of whether you see yourself as a property manager in the future, I think it should be a prerequisite for every rental property owner or future landlord, I think it should be a prerequisite to have some experience managing property firsthand. Yeah. And and you might find that you're just not cut out to be an an, an operator, like like a hands-on property manager as a landlord. I mean, if you're the sort of person that doesn't like confrontation or doesn't like people being upset at you or angry with you or can't can't figure out that like some problems are more desperate than other. I mean, I just got a, a funny text um, that I shared with these guys about someone said there's an emergency at the property. Um, the dryer is not drying my clothing. If you're the if you're the sort of person that would take that text in seriousness and call over a repair person that moment to resolve the issue and can't contextualize that with an actual emergency, which is like, hey, I don't have heat or there's water flowing through my apartment or you know, whatever <laughs> else. Like, again, that, that may not be, there's not something wrong with you. It just may, may not be the type of, you know, investor that that you should be. So we, we've dealt with that too on the construction side. We have people that are just, as I mentioned before, about too involved, like people that are just really, really, really too involved in things that go on the property and they can't, they can't figure out when a request is unreasonable or though hypothetically reasonable, doesn't need to be taken care of the moment that it is received. So it, it's, it's something to learn, I think, by going through it. Gentlemen, thank you for your time and expertise as always. For the folks listening at home, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast to reach out to us on the Brick by Brick, that's Brick X Brick Facebook, and make sure to listen to us on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.